Hi, everyone. Welcome back from, from lunch. I'm Michelle Deitch. I'm a senior lecturer at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, where I teach juvenile justice policy. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome you on behalf of the Texas Tribune to the panel on the future of juvenile justice in Texas. Um, the Tribune could not have assembled a more um, outstanding and appropriate panel to discuss these issues. Uh, this is a group of key stakeholders in the juvenile justice reform effort. And um, they're really an outstanding group. So thank you for, for joining us today. I'm just going to give very brief introductions. Um, Mike Griffiths is the brand new executive director of the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. He's been on the job for all of two weeks, and we're delighted to see that you're still standing, Mike. <laughs> so, um, you've already made a splash with your uh, actions in the, in the first few days of, uh, on the job. Previously, he'd been the longtime head of the Dallas Juvenile Probation Department. Uh, Deborah Fowler, at the end, is uh, the deputy director of Texas Appleseed, which is one of the um, uh, ma major players on advocacy advocacy involving juvenile justice in Texas. Uh, and uh, she's auth also offered, authored three important reports on school-to-prison pipeline issues, school discipline issues. Um, Mark Levin directs the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, and he's also the brains behind the uh, national conservative organization Right on Crime, which boasts people like um, Ed Meese and, uh, uh, and uh, Newt Gingrich among their, their leaders. Uh, Mark has authored numerous uh, reports and policy papers on the need for juvenile justice reform. And Ana Yanez Correa is the longtime executive director of the um, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, which is one of the state's leading um, uh, and most effective research and advocacy organizations on uh, criminal justice and juvenile justice issues. Uh, Anna and her team have recently completed a report on um, youth in custody at the local level. So this panel will last for 60 minutes. I'll try to reserve about 15 minutes at the end for uh, questions. Um, and we're going to have it in a discussion format. I'd like to remind the audience to please turn off all cell phones unless you're tweeting. And if you are tweeting, um, the hashtag is TribuneFest. So thank you. So to kick off our discussion today, Mike, I would like to start with you. Um, sure. Sorry to put you on the hot seat here, but um, you right. are. Um, on your first day on the job, you said that you want to take the agency in a new direction. Um, and I'm hoping that you can describe that new direction to us. What is your vision for the well, new TJJD? It's real important that the agency get in line with Senate Bill 653, that we push more services down to the community, that we make the state-run system smaller. Uh, kids do better when they're closer to home. We all know that. Kids do better when they have local alternatives and resources. So uh, I didn't feel that the agency had a model that would ascribe to that. Uh, we are going to move to that very quickly. Uh, it's going to take a reorganization and a transformation, but we're well on our way in doing that now. So more of an emphasis on the um, local type local, of Local initiatives, uh, accountability-based, but mm -hmm. still uh, really emphasize evidence-based, research-based services for communities, uh, providing incentives for those communities to do more and more to keep those youth there rather than into a state system. Great. Thank you. Um, Deborah, you've had a lot of concerns that you've expressed to the media in recent months about the increase in violence in the facilities, the state-run facilities. And I'm wondering, does this still remain a concern for you? And if so, what additional steps do you think TJJD ought to um, be taking to address sure. that? You know, it's been a concern for advocates for uh, several years now, and I, I'm 
there are some who will probably remember that back in 2010, Texas Appleseed was joined by a couple of other advocacy organizations in asking the Department of Justice to come in and, and actually investigate what was going on in the state secure facilities because we were so concerned. Um, uh, the former administration uh, ignored the concerns, and, and it resulted in what we've seen very publicly um, over the last few months. Um, I think that what remains to be done, and, we, and Mike and I have talked about it, and I know that you know I don't want to answer that question for Mike, but I know that he that he feels strongly that the the, the answer is not so much in. Uh, transferring kids to another facility or transferring kids to prison, but in really looking at the programmatic structure within the state facilities to find what went wrong, why it is that we had the level of chaos that we did in the facilities. Um, because while we do know that they're that they're dealing with a difficult population, the reality is that it's it maybe a little bit about the kids, but it's a lot about the the poor programming and the poor services that were being provided. So, so you attribute the rise in violence to a programmatic mm -hmm. failure? Yeah, I mean, I think you know we had a pretty radical shift in 2007 after uh, Senate Bill 103 was passed and. Um, the agency completely rewrote its uh, primary uh, behavioral uh, management program. Um, Resocialization became connections. And I don't know, you know, I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you what, what problems may exist with the programming. I just know that in um, visiting facilities, it became pretty clear to us over the couple of years that we were in the facilities talking to kids, talking to staff, that... Um, for whatever reason, the new programs really weren't being implement, implemented appropriately. Um, we saw kids who had a lot of idle time, which is a, really dangerous with this population. You want to keep them busy 16 hours a day. Um, and we saw um, connections being implemented very differently from campus to campus within the, within the um, system. Mike, how would you respond to Deborah on this? Do you agree with her? And do you no, no, she's right on target. Um, I think the the system of connections, they didn't look at validity. There's certainly not fidelity between the campuses. So we have to take action to uh, remedy that. Uh, I'm proud to say that I'm very open to having a national expert come in. David Roush, and he and I have already talked. He's got it on his calendar to come in. David Domenici is going to look at our education program, another national expert on, on at-risk youth. Uh, we need that. Uh, Texas is a great system. There's a lot of great stories that are still going on in, in the agency. Mm -hmm. But the system as a whole needs to be reviewed. And so we're going to emphasize, you know, validity and fidelity. And uh, we want to make sure the taxpayers know that what we're going to do has shown to be effective other places. And to what degree do you feel like the, uh, the new Phoenix program and the transfers of some of these assaultive kids to the adult uh, prison system, is that going to make any difference? I guess my knee-jerk kind of answer to that is it's a necessary evil. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want youth hurting other youth. We don't want hurt youth hurting staff. We don't want youth hurting themselves. Uh, ideally, what you have to create is a system that has a behavior management system where on each campus those issues are dealt with and there is that level of structure. Uh, you know, when you look back at the history of, of whether it was TYC or TJJP, um, what, you're, what you're looking at is some very, very well done programs. And, and so I've been to most campuses, all but Ron Jackson in the last two weeks. 
And I see this on their walls. I see the, the successes at Evans, you know, in the 80s and 90s. I see the programs, you know, we all remember Giddings programs being a national model for the serious offender. We've got to get back to that. And so it, it's, to me, my mantra to the employees has been, you know, I want to empower you to do your work and hold you accountable for that work. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what we've got to move toward. Great. Um, Anna, the uh, agency took a lot of budget hits at the same time that this reform uh, movement's been going on for the last few sessions, um, including the merger of the state agencies. And I'm wondering what challenges these budget cuts have created for the new agency, um, how it's affected the youth, how it's affected the staff. Right. It's not just about cutting budgets. It's about making sure that whatever money is there is actually following the kids. Our motto has always been the rights and money must follow the kids. Like best practices must be implemented to accommodate these kids. But overall, we just recently conducted a survey. There's 165 probation departments in the state of Texas, and we conducted a survey of the chiefs to find out what it is that they need to make sure that they comply with the vision of community-based treatment program and what they overwhelmingly said is that they did not have enough money. I know, surprise, surprise, everybody says that we don't have enough money, but what they did show is that they needed money for uh, mental health services for youth, that they needed more alternatives to, to, to detention, that they needed programs to help out with family unification, that they needed programs that would really target the trauma of these kids. So. Um, you're starting to see that there's an impact. So if you don't have the, you might have a community that has the will to be able to assist the kid, but without the resources, without the staff, without the money, it makes it very difficult to do right by these kids. And have you seen at the uh, at the state facility level, have you seen services compromised by budget cuts or concerns? Again, it really comes down to mm -hmm. the fidelity. You can have an amazing program on paper that really targets the criminogenic indicators of youth, but if you don't have the staff, you don't have the this, the, the will it, in terms of the, the leadership on top, you're not going to be able to implement the programs accordingly. And that's what we have seen is that you can have a lot of various programs that look good on paper, but if the staff is not there, and how could they? Especially when you have uh, facilities that are all over the place and it's really hard to identify, recruit, and retain really good qualified people, you're not going to get the best outcomes. And that's why um, our organization... Okay, so we're thinking that there's 55,000 kids that are sent to the probation system, right? 165 probation departments. There's 50 pre-adjudication secured, uh, secured facilities. There are 33 um, post-adjudication secured facilities. And the pre-adjudication uh, secured facilities house about 27,000 kids. The, um, the, the, the post um, facilities, they house about, you know, ranging from like 3,000 kids. So it's not about, uh, it, it's making sure that no matter where the child ends up, either at the state level or at the county level, they're getting the services that they need and that the rights are being respected and that you have the, the staff and you have the programming to be able to fully equip this young men and, 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 and children. You know, because the thing is, is that there's been, a, there's been dialogue in terms of, um, you know, transferring the most troubled kids to the adult system, and that's that's a very dangerous road to to take on. And there's a reason why there's an adult system and there's a juvenile system, and they both require very different strategies. And we have enough evidence that demonstrates what works specifically for youth um, that that are not just saving money, but are really having positive outcomes for kids. 
Great. Um, Mark, if I can ask you, much of the reform effort over the last few years has focused on trying to reduce the number of youth who are locked up in state secure facilities um, and moving them more into the county level. Is that the right approach? Do you think that it might compromise public safety to not lock up all these kids? No, I think actually if you looked at it, of course, Texas, we've got the lowest crime rate since 1973. We've seen uh, just in some of the, it's hard to, we don't really have a statewide juvenile crime rate, but we can see the juvenile arrests and those have, have gone down continuously as we've reduced, uh, you know, the number of youths in state custody, which is basically about a third of what it was just five or six years ago. So it's pretty remarkable. Um, I think that, uh, you know, crime actually has been declining nationally for 18 years in a row, so there's a lot of things going on, but certainly uh, we've seen in Texas, both on the adult and juvenile side, even uh, a bigger crime decline in the last few years than other states. So I think what we... You do reach a point, though, that obviously now at our state lockups, the youth that are still there are uh, more severe, and whether it's the severity of the offense and or uh, about 40% have a mental health need. Uh, so it's not to say some of those needs couldn't be met at the local level, but I think you do reach a point of diminishing returns. We're probably not going to get to a third of where we are today. But we need to think about uh, different, uh, like, for example, the Missouri model. You know, one of the issues Anna brought up is there is a shortage of, for example, qualified mental health personnel in some of the remote areas where these lockups are. And here we have in Houston uh, the biggest medical center in the world with a, many child psychologists, child psychiatrists, that we could have a group home type uh, environment in the Houston area where 30 or 40 percent of the commitments to uh, the state youth lockups come. So that's what we need to be thinking about. And then I also think we need to look at the, um, as the commitments have really uh, fell so dramatically, that means that the revocations, those coming into our state youth lockups from parole, are a higher percentage. Not that they've gone up, but they're now a higher percentage because the total is lower. So it's about a quarter. And uh, about half of those or so are misdemeanants or technical violators. That is, they haven't committed a new felony. And so what we need to do is look at the uh, parole system, which really traditionally has just been a surveillance thing, uh, where, you know, the kid comes in to report in, to the office, you know, whatever, once a week or once every few weeks. There are models that we've looked at, the CARE program in San Antonio, which was the U.S. Department of Labor project that's kind of like the wraparound Milwaukee model where you have uh, restitution, you have uh, education, vocational, of course. That's why the Department of Labor funded a community service um, and bringing the whole family to a one-stop center. Uh, and also the Parenting Without Love and Limits, which is being piloted in the Houston area. But both of those have a record of uh, reducing recidivism. Uh, obviously, it's a brief record for the CARE program, but PLL has been a national, nationally listed by the Department of Justice as an evidence-based program because of the reductions in recidivism. So the idea is simply we could perhaps cut the length of stay for some of the less serious offenders that are in, uh, in our state youth lockups and take some of those savings and put it into these comprehensive reentry programs that can reduce our high recidivism rates. Uh, so that's one of the other priorities we're looking at. And of course, that's another way of skinning the cat. You can reduce your you know, incarceration level by reducing commitments, but you could also do it by affecting the length of stay and then by affecting the return rate, which is really what we're trying to do is have fewer new crimes, fewer youths revoked for technical violations back to our state youth lockups. Great. Mike, the, um, just to follow up on that, the population in the uh, state secure facilities has been dropping well below even what was projected by the legislature. Do you feel like there's, um, it's reasonable to think that those numbers could drop still lower, and is there the potential to close some additional facilities? Well, of course, as most of the audience knows, the legislative appropriations request does project if, if we go for the 10% reduction, that there would be more closures. 
I think it's incumbent upon the agency to be very thoughtful and methodical in terms of how do we plan for that. Do we look at specialized offender groups, such as the youth, as Mark had mentioned, with severe behavioral health issues? Do we look at gender-specific services? And it's because we have such few females in our system, but uh, it can go down more. I think, you know, how we use our halfway houses, you know, the nine halfway houses. We have some very good programs now. McFadden House takes youth that have substance abuse issues only. And so do we replicate that model to where a youth who isn't a danger to, to commit another crime but has a behavioral health issue and put them directly back into a structured environment but not in a secure lockup? Uh, so those are all the things that we have to be planning on even before the session begins so we're prepared uh, after the session when decisions are finally made. Do you, um, do you think that there's a risk of further concentrating the serious and most violent juveniles in single facilities if we close more institutions? I think that's something we have to be very, very cautious of because I do think the classification of youth, whether it's in the, in the counties when they're looking at pre-adjudication facilities or post-adjudication facilities or even the secure programs that the state runs, we have to think about the mixture of those youth because you don't want... The, the more naive offender to become educated on something very serious. And that's what happens when you put that hardcore serious offender right alongside someone that has less issues in terms of criminality. Good. I want to say I think that the, the seriousness of the offenses of the youth who are in the state secure facilities has become a little bit of a red herring in this conversation. And, and the reality is that even in places like Giddings that have some uh, programmatic structures that are intensive programming for some of the worst offenders in the, in the state, worst juvenile offenders in the state, have very high success rates. And so it's really a question of, um, you know, how many kids do you have in a facility and what kind of programmatic structures are in place to really uh, treat their behavioral issues. So looking just at the offense alone doesn't tell you right, very much. Right, right. I mean, I think we have an opportunity for some really innovative um, programs to, to work to rehabilitate these. I think these Debbie's kids. right. You need to look at the youth risk levels. Absolutely. And also their strength levels. You know, there's great resiliency in, in many of the young people there, and we have to support that and, and, and empower them to do well. Good. Um, and let me shift focus to talk a little bit more about county-level programs now. Mike, of course, okay. you ran the Dallas uh, Juvenile Probation Department for so many years, and um, so you have an obvious appreciation for what the counties are dealing with on this. Um, do you think that uh, county probation departments can handle an increase in youth, and what challenges is this request presenting at the county level? I believe they're very open to it, and I believe they can do it. I think they do need the support. They need the structure in terms of, are you going to do programs that are evidence-based? Are you going to do programs that show effectiveness elsewhere? Uh, but again, the, the challenge is going to be for that middle or small level county program. In your urban areas, they have great support from their commissioner's court. And so the, the budget balance between state and local funding is, is very appropriate. If you're in a small county and you're asked to do some evidence-based programs, you're, we're really going to have to look at regionalization and, and sharing services. And I think it's important for all of us to think about this new, new model as a system. It's not... You know, it's not the agency and it's not the county, it's a system. And so why can't the, the expertise that's in many of our state-run facilities mm -hmm. benefit and support the counties in these rural areas? Because, you know, they have qualified clinicians there. We're one system now. 
and and that was the intent of Senate Bill 653. Great. Do you think that there needs to be more money coming from the legislature in order to support local uh, programming and operations? Well, I would always say yes. I think as Anna said, <laughs> I, I think, but we have to make our we have to make a compelling story for that. Uh, it is tough economically all across our state. So, what we ask for, we have to show in terms of, of why and that we project and we're going to measure. You know, the one thing our system hasn't been good at is measuring. And I can't tell you today what program is more effective than, than another program because, frankly, we have not measured in the last five or ten years uh, which programs work better than the others. And, and that has to change very quickly. Uh, Anna, in the report that you did um, when you were looking at all these county-level uh, facilities, can you talk about some of the innovative things that you saw happening, the, the good things? Well, it's interesting because every single county has a wide range variety of dealing with kids with mental health problems or trauma or how they work uh, in terms of seclusion and restraints and post-education. And so, every, so one of the biggest findings is that there is no standardization, is that everybody is doing uh, whatever they can on their own. Uh, but, I mean, like Dallas, Harris, and Travis have, have implemented really good strategies in terms of serving mental health. Um, and there's the uh, Dallas and Harris has, has done an amazing job at reducing the number of kids uh, in their uh, pre-adjudication facilities. And Bear County has done an incredible job on reducing uh, the issue of restraints and seclusion. So it can be done. It doesn't... Uh, you know, it does it does cost money, but it costs a heck of a lot less money than what we're spending in terms of the state level. And there's enough expertise out there in the in the community uh, of practitioners that can really come together to come up with some really localized solutions. I do have to tell you that as much as uh, people were saying, yes, you know, we need more assistance, we need more assistance, they also need accountability. Uh, with money comes more accountability. With accountability also comes technical assistance. Because it's a system that's shifting cultures, you've got to give practitioners those tools to be able to, to use evidence-based practices, to be able to keep track of those outcomes, to be able to learn. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. It never is. But, there, but there's a lot of hope. And I haven't seen... Right now, the legislature really wants to make the system work. The advocates really want to make the system work. Everybody's looking at Texas as a model, not just on the adult issues, but also on juvenile justice issues. So there's no excuse to get it right. Do you, do you feel like there's sufficient oversight at the state level of what's happening at the county level? There's not sufficient oversight. There's not sufficient oversight. And I think it comes down to counties thinking, look, we, yes, the state gives us money, but the counties... At the, uh, they get money from the county, the feds, and and their uh, and the state, mm -hmm. and they they don't like to be told what to do. They would like to have more money uh, without being told what to do, mm -hmm. but it's not about telling them what to do. It's about being able to be their partner in a way that's really going to see their full potential come alive in a way that's going to have the key criminal justice practitioners like district attorneys and judges really see the public safety outcomes of these strategies that are very exciting. I wish we could have been able to go to every single 165 counties and talk to you know, the DAs and talk to the judges and talk to the chiefs to, to find out about what, they, what their challenges are. There are a lot of challenges, but... It, when everything is said and done, these are kids, and I know that they really want to make it successful. Um, Hidalgo County, for example, uh, does not certified 
as many kids, has one of the least certification of kids into the adult system. And you have two different ideologies. Um, individuals, judges basically being saying these kids do not belong in the adult system. Um, and sometimes the DA saying, well, it's about punishment. It's all about punishment. And it isn't. It's about making sure that you increase public safety and the strategies are out there. So there's definitely a lot, a lot that we that we can learn from from our practitioners, and but they also need to be held accountable and be given technical assistance. Mark, just to follow up on this public safety benefit that comes from shifting towards more of a county type approach, can you talk to us about the cost effectiveness and um, uh, cost savings and the effectiveness of shifting towards a county level? Well, approach? sure. I mean, uh, I think that uh, certainly we uh, we've seen that. Uh, uh, for a long time, it's been true that, you know, the county-run facilities cost less than the state-run facilities. Now, it's not necessarily always an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. You have to look at what services they're providing and so forth. Um, but I think that uh, certainly what we saw was, if you go back and look what we've done in, in Texas, with, uh, in 2007, of course, there was Senate Bill 3 that uh, said we're not going to take misdemeanors anymore into our state youth lockups. And it wasn't an unfunded mandate because the legislature gave the counties $55 million, uh, which is about half of what we had been spending to lock them up. Uh, so, and then in 2009, we uh, implemented a budget provision that uh, we helped draft called the Commitment Reduction Program, or Grant C. And what that said is county juvenile boards could voluntarily say to the state, we'll send fewer youths next year than our three-year average, and then they got uh, a share of the savings, which was, again was about another $50 million. Now, um, certainly you can see that uh, the commitment reduction that resulted from both of those actions uh, saved two or three times what we gave the counties. And we have seen um, uh, positive uh, results. These programs that are funded through the Commitment Reduction Program, they have to uh, submit the Juvenile Probation Department to what was then the Juvenile Probation Commission, now the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. They have to submit evidence when they're initially seeking the grant that those programs have worked in other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And then once they have the grant, they have to submit performance measures such as recidivism, educational outcomes on an ongoing basis. So I think it's been uh, quite successful. Um, and uh, I, I think that certainly um, one of the things people didn't know was when we were back going back to 07 and 08, you had counties like Travis that were saying, we're not sending any more kids at all to state lockups because we're afraid of what may happen to them with the abuses. And so there was a worry that perhaps, well, if we, if we fix the state youth lockups to some degree and, and instilled greater confidence in them, then we'd see a spike. And actually, we didn't see that. We saw the commitment reduction program. The first fiscal year after that, a 36% drop in, in commitment. So... Uh, I think it's really quite encouraging. And part of it has been, frankly, there's fewer juveniles arrested for a crime. So you've got fewer coming into the system to begin with. So that has helped a great deal. Right. I want to also just add on um, uh, this, some of the successes of the Grant C program that I think you know, people may not know about and it was somewhat unexpected to me. We were concerned, I think advocates were concerned, that you would see a reduction in commitments, but you'd see a spike in the number of kids who were being placed in the county post-adjudication facilities. And what's been really remarkable is that we've actually seen over the last two years or three years a reduction in the number of kids who are actually being placed in the county post-adjudication facilities. Um, Appleseed has been looking at educational programming in county facilities, and when we've been in the county facilities, we've asked because what we see consistently is many of them are below, well below capacity. Um, and they tell us that the reason that they're below 
capacity in their post-adjudication facilities is because the grantee programs are also keeping the youth out of the post-adjudication facilities. So it's, it's not only a win in terms of the most expensive beds for you know, the kids for state commitment, but it's also a win for keeping kids out of you know, one of the more expensive treatments at the, at the county level, too. And a lot of that is uh, using multi-systemic therapy, functional family therapy. These programs all have some differences, but basically what you're talking about often is a juvenile probation officer along with a therapist coming to that home could be two or three times a week, helping that, it's often a single mom, but helping that family build structure, uh, create uh, discipline for that child, uh, and also, of course, dealing with mental health and substance abuse referrals as needed. So uh, to me, uh, you know, as a conservative, the worst thing that can happen is when the government has to subsume what the family should be done. So when you can have these programs strengthen the family, you need less government. So it's really very simple. Now, let me just generally ask this question. I mean, when, the, when the merger occurred, one of the big concerns of many observers was that uh, even though the bulk of kids in the system were at the local level, um, what was happening at the state level, and particularly all the problems that have been happening there lately, might overwhelm all the stuff happening at the county level. How, how does that balance play out? I mean, well, I, I think you, you see that very vividly, Michelle, because... You know, it's funny that, you know, 98% of the youth are handled in the community, but all the attention from, from policymakers and the media has been on that 2% that are in the state facility. So we, we have to fix that. We have to make sure that, that everyone is comfortable with what's going on in our, our state program so the real emphasis can go back to where the real results are. And you have, for example, there's 600 kids that spent 100 days in the pre-adjudication facilities. This is pre, prior to? Juvenile detention. Juvenile detention facilities. And so that's 100 days that they didn't get an education. That's 100 days too many days. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of wastefulness. So there's a, we have a long way to go. But, you know, post-adjudication facilities, pre-adjudication facilities have to comply with best practices. These kids are in there for longer periods of time than they should. And uh, in terms of restraints and in terms of contact, those are symptoms, a symptoms to a much greater problem that needs to trigger automatic assistance from the state with, with best practices so that they won't have to resort to restraining a child. Most of these children have experienced hor like horrible situations. They have a lot of trauma. They've gone through a lot. And so the more that you implement strategies that over-traumatize them, the more likely they are to continue to, to get into the juvenile justice system. Well, speaking of getting into the juvenile justice system, I want to switch gears and talk a bit about school discipline issues. Um, I, when we talk about where the bulk of the problem is and bulk of the kids, probably more of them are handled through the school discipline system than any other place. Um, Deborah, you've written several reports on this issue um, and how school discipline is tied to youth's eventual involvement in the juvenile justice system, uh, the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. So I'm wondering if you could explain the connection between suspension, expulsion, ticketing, and juvenile justice sure. system involvement. We're, we're very lucky in Texas. Uh, Texas leaders about three years ago um, began to uh, work with the Council of State Governments to look at the possibility of doing a statewide study on this phenomenon that, um, that Appleseed and others have talked about for, for years called the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, and, and 
what we ended up with, I don't know how many folks are familiar with the report that was issued last summer from the Council of State Governments called Breaking Schools Rules, uh, but it is probably the, it is the most comprehensive study that's been published on the school-to-prison pipeline uh, in the nation. And they were able to actually take individual student-level data uh, from the TEA de database and match it with uh, kid-level data from the Texas Juvenile Probation Commission database and do a longitudinal study um, tracking uh, close to a million kids over a total of, I think, eight years to look at the impact that even things that we think of as innocuous as in-school suspension might have on a youth's outcomes. And what they found was pretty startling. I mean, they were able to control for things like socioeconomic status and, you know, virtually every indicator that TEA collects data on or that TJPC collects data on. And they found that uh, kids who are um, even subjected to exclusionary discipline just one time are much more likely to be retained, much more likely to drop out, and much more likely to end up having contact with the juvenile system just a year after that they were disciplined in school. Great. And can you talk to us about ticketing? What is that and why is it such a concern for you? Sure. And I think when we think about the school-to-prison pipeline, you really conceive it as almost two pieces. There's this piece that the Council of State Government uh, report now has fully illuminated the, the exclusionary discipline piece. And then we have... Uh, a much more direct route from school-based police. Um, we started in Texas to see an increase in the number of police on our public school campuses back in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, now it would be pretty unusual for you to go, particularly on a middle or high school campus anywhere in the state, and not see a school police officer either uh, there because the district itself created its own internal police department or because they contract with local law enforcement for police. Um, the result has been a huge number of kids being issued tickets for tickets, citations, like you get when you're you know, pulled over for speeding, uh, for Class C misdemeanors. Uh, and the overwhelming majority are for things like disruption of class and uh, disorderly conduct. Um, and so we've, we've actually started to, to feed kids into uh, the system uh, in a very direct route from our schools. Okay, and what would you like to see the legislature do about that? Well, we need to find a way to um, to drastically reduce the number of tickets that kids are receiving. Uh, How many are there? I mean, can you give us a sense right, of that? Right, sure. Um, in fiscal year 2011, according to the Office of Court Administration, there were about 430,000 juvenile cases that were handled by our municipal and our Justice of the Peace courts in Texas. This number is actually conservative because the JP courts aren't uh, reporting their data in the same way that the municipal courts are. By the way, I've looked for other states that are prosecuting kids with uh, that many kids with misdemeanors in a given year, and I have not found a single one that comes even anywhere close to touching Texas. Um, so we're, if you take out the traffic tickets, it's about 330,000 in fiscal year 2011 non-traffic offenses. And these are just against kids? Right. And how many of those are for school-based misbehavior? We don't know the answer to that because we don't have statewide data collection. Mm -hmm. uh, but te Texas Appleseed has actually been able to gather data from um, the, the first time around. We looked at 26 school district police departments. We're about to publish an update, and we've now got about twice, <coughs> twice as much data. Uh, and what you see is that... Um, you know, a huge number of tickets are being issued for school-based offenses. Uh, and 
enormous number just for failure to attend school cases. The truancy. Um, the truancy cases. Um, the truancy cases alone make up about 120,000 um, cases in those courts every year. What, what's so bad about getting a ticket? I mean, people get traffic tickets all the time. Right. Well, you know, um, because they're going through our adult criminal court system, it means that all of the protections that we generally think of as applying for kids who are charged with crimes in the juvenile system don't attach. And so kids don't get appointed counsel. Um, they're actually ending up in many cases with a criminal conviction. Um, and those criminal convictions can then follow them for a lifetime. They'll have to, in many cases, reveal them on job applications or on college applications. Um, and there may be other collateral consequences um, that, that we wouldn't even you know, think of for, for kids who later want to get a professional license and maybe um, you know, for whatever licensing board, you, if you have a, a conviction for even Class C theft, that can be a problem for getting a license. So. Well, one of the things that bothers me is an 11-year-old signs something in school saying he's going to appear in court, and then that ticket goes in the washing machine, and when he turns 17, a warrant's issued for That's his right. arrest automatically. Mm -hmm. And so I, don't, I think there's a problem with kids you know, signing something when they're 11 years old saying, I'm going to appear in court. Yeah, I was actually sitting in a meeting with a truancy officer for a large school district uh, uh, last spring, and they were talking about um, conducting a warrant sweep in their high school for kids who had um, not complied with terms for tickets that have been issued. And who's benefiting financially from this? You know, that's it's really hard to uh, know mm -hmm. the answer to that question. We haven't, nobody's looked to see how much money the municipalities or the counties are actually collecting from the fines. So, so we, don't, we don't know. But I do know that um, there was an article published recently about the truancy courts in Dallas said that they had about 35,000 uh, failure to attend school cases um, cycle through in a year and that they had raised, I think, close to $2 million in fines from those cases. So. But Mark, I was going to ask, I know your office has recently issued some reports mm -hmm. on this issue. So uh, you've written about zero tolerance and how it's not a good idea in these cases. What, what kinds of alternative disciplinary strategies would you rather see in uh, the schools using? Well, yeah, I mean, it is a big problem. Our current education code, disrupting class, there's all these ways you can disrupt class, including making unreasonable noise. And so, you know, I could have been ticketed or suspended almost every day when I was in <laughs> elementary school, but thankfully I had some merciful teachers. Uh, but I will say that uh, one, we put out a report that my colleague Jeanette Mull wrote on, uh, which talks about a tiered discipline model, uh, which basically, it's kind of like the graduated sanctions we talk about in probation, but instead of the kid being suspended, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat, you go through a series of kind of progressive sanctions um, before doing that. So they've actually implemented this in Cobb County, uh, Georgia, with tremendous success, Clayton County, Georgia, excuse me, 64% uh, drop in referrals to the juvenile system, 73% drop in guns brought to campus, 20% increase in graduation rates, and Waco is also, uh, Waco School District has started doing this, uh, not fully, but as much as they can within the state zero tolerance laws. You know, we do need to look at some of the zero tolerance laws we have on the book in addition to narrowing these things like, uh, you know, unreasonable noise being the basis for uh, disrupting class citation, we also need to look at, for example, um, if you have alcohol, okay, within 300 feet of a campus, that means, a, you know, an empty beer can in the back of your car parked, you know, high school student parked within 300 feet of the campus, okay, that's a mandatory suspension. The principal has no discretion whatsoever. We need to, and same with bringing like an asthma inhaler to school that you don't register with, uh, even if it's a legitimate prescription 
description, you don't register with the school. So we need to narrow uh, these mandatory suspension uh, offenses as well. And they're not even really offenses. They're, they're, they're not, because they're not crimes. But uh, they're maybe status offenses, which is only because the person is, uh, is not uh, an adult. But we need to give the principals the discretion as to whether or not those things warrant suspensions, taking into account the student's prior disciplinary record and so forth. Um, so uh, we really hope. We have taken some steps the last few years in Texas. There have been some good bills that all of us have worked on. Uh, but I mean, we still are looking at 600,000 out-of-school suspensions a year. The, the uh, study by the Council of State Governments found 60% of sixth graders have been suspended uh, into out-of-school suspension. And, you know, in the 1950s, right, you know, there was typically a two, mom wasn't working, so they just went home. Mom watched them do their homework, but that's not happening. I mean, we've, we've heard from the sheriff's deputy, like in uh, Fort Worth, that they're picking them up at convenience stores. We know they're much more likely to commit an offense when they're in uh, that period of out-of-school suspension because typically there's nobody watching them. And they're getting into gangs and just hanging out at the convenience store and so forth. So we uh, it's been clear that these uh, there have been studies that have shown uh, out of school the kids behave no better when they get back from out of school suspension. They look at it as a vacation, not a punishment. Uh, they lose ground in terms they fall further further behind academically. There, there's nobody making sure they're doing their classwork. So uh, yes, there are situations where students do need to be removed uh, for conduct that endangers other students and teachers. We have disciplinary alternative schools, uh, but we've really gone way too far in terms of the numbers that we're seeing for very minor misbehavior. We have to be really careful, though, not to confuse, you know, when people say zero tolerance, zero tolerance, zero tolerance, but really it comes down to discretionary. I mean, discretionary can be also problematic. When, it, when you look at the data and you look at who is being impacted in terms of, uh, you know, a specific race, a specific gender, a specific, you know, various factors, it's in those places where the administrator does have a lot of discretion, but doesn't have the tools to promote a positive behavior within the schools. And these are also symptoms to a much greater problem. I mean, when you have a school that uh, does not have the most effective class management style, when you have a school when they don't have the resources necessary to really help a lot of the kids, you're going to have these type of outcomes. And a lot of it has to do with the principal. Uh, when I was working on my dissertation, I was able to talk to a lot of principals, and it really, it really talked to about if the leader of that school really believes in positive behavioral support, you're going to see a much lower rate of this of discretion of expulsions and and things that will push the kids to the juvenile justice system. So it's not an, an easy solution, and we really have to get down to what the schools need. How do we hold them accountable, but also giving them give them what they need to be able to not not use those strategies that don't work. Uh, Anna just mentioned this concept of PBIS, positive behavior intervention mm -hmm. and supports. And just to go full circle, is there a way that we could talk about the use of PBIS, which is one of the most successful uh, programs, interventions, I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, uh, that exists. Can we use that on the uh, campuses of the institutions to try to control behavior? Well, there's already been an initiative to begin that in our education programs, but the real question is, can we use that throughout the whole day when they're not in school? And so, mm -hmm. uh, again, a cognitive-based program where, where the youth understand both the rewards and the responsibility and the actions and the accountability are what we've got to move to. So yeah, we're very supportive of PBIS. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think something. what's remarkable is that even with, I mean, it's another one of the programs that hasn't been as well implemented as we'd like mm -hmm. on the, secure, the state secure campuses. But even with uh, poor implementation, it's still shown some pretty remarkable results. Yeah.
great. Well, we could easily keep on talking about all of these issues for hours, but I do want to give the audience a chance to uh, ask any questions they may have. So if I could just ask anyone interested to step to the mic. Uh, my name is Krista Pifferer, and I work for BCFS Health and Human Services. Mark mentioned one of the partnership programs that we're very proud of that we uh, had with the former TYC, the CARE program. And uh, what that did was really allow us to um, leverage the uh, flexibility and the resources of us, the private industry, with uh, some infrastructure that we already had here in Texas, working with um, the juvenile justice youth as well as foster youth and other at-risk at teens. Um, so I just sort of have a question for you guys, um, for all of you. What role do you see the private sector playing as we move forward with juvenile justice reform? I'll just start by saying it's, it's a very good partnership. When, when, the, when we show evidence, and, and again, in Bear County where you've had that program, I know they've had very good results. Uh, what we need to make sure, in, in my mind, is that those partnerships are with organizations that have uh, stakeholders at the table, not shareholders. And so it's not about profit. It's about helping the community and empowering the community. And uh, I'm very open to that. I think the key is the performance measures. You know, we've had issues, I think, in the adult system in particular where uh, contracts are awarded just based on the low bidder without any regard to what are the outcomes uh, in terms of offender outcomes, recidivism, uh, obtaining vocational degrees, uh, desistance from substance abuse, whatever the goals of the program are. And so I think we need to look at Got a kind of best value approach in terms of, and there's a lot of pioneering work being done in England where they're actually paying in large part, or even in some cases, the charity gets solely paid based on recidivism. And you're also seeing that with social impact bonds in Massachusetts uh, and New York, where uh, the degree to which that charity reduces recidivism is is basically uh, affects ultimately whether they get paid or not. Great. Further questions? I don't think anyone... Can you oh, just introduce yourself and I'm state Virginia here. Greenway. Okay. I'm a local criminal defense attorney. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone over the age of 35 would even recognize what goes on in our schools. Um, things that teachers routinely would handle internally or the principal would handle internally have been criminalized. And to ask what the impact is, it's... It's too great to even consider. I mean, you have poor families yeah. owing hundreds and hundreds of dollars for truancy tickets, or their kids smoked, you know, a cigarette on campus. It's insanity. And I'm, I don't know when that was instituted, and I don't know what the possibility of removing law enforcement personnel from these campuses is, but it makes no sense. Um, I think uh, educators have abdicated their role um, to discipline these children. And the reason children are, not, are treated differently by the criminal justice system is they're not cognitively able, um, as adults are, to make good choices. And instead of slapping them with fines or throwing them into the criminal justice system, there has to be a better way. And I don't know if there's ever thought to remove law enforcement personnel from our campuses? You know, that's a really interesting question because that debate is taking place in the advocacy community right now. And there's, uh, you know, there's uh, on one side of the debate, there are folks who say, come on, let's be practical and pragmatic. Uh, there's no way we're going to be able to remove all of the school police officers from campuses. And on the other side, um, you have folks who are saying, you know, but 
if you don't, we're probably not going to see some of the problems we're seeing with criminalization truly eliminated. Um, I can only say that I think that that's a dialogue that has just started and is continuing. I I, I, don't, I don't think Texas is yet ready to um, eliminate law enforcement from school campuses. I think one thing that school districts should be considering is the cost associated with law enforcement and whether or not um, that is the service that they want to prioritize when it comes to, say, for a school district like Dallas or Houston, um, two districts that are paying about you know, 19 to $20 million for their internal school dis- district police departments, whether or not that's the best prioritization of that money. I mean, the reality is that school crime hasn't increased greatly even over the last 40 years. The first studies were done in the late 60s, um, and we haven't seen a a dramatic difference. We have horrible, terrible, obviously, um, incidents um, like Columbine, but thankfully, they're incredibly rare. And so I think for districts, there has to be some question of, you know, $20 million will be, be better served putting... Um, some of that money into social work services or into creating um, school-based mental health services for our students. Great. Well, let me also could just say that we like the phrase passing of the paddle, which Ryan Turner, our friend of the Municipal Courts Education Center, came up with, but the, it doesn't work. I mean, because the problem is all the research shows it's the swiftness of the uh, sanction uh, that really affects uh, students' behavior. If they go to court with their mom several months later and she pays a $500 fine, they don't even connect that. A 10 or 11-year-old doesn't even connect that with whatever they did. Uh, So it's grossly ineffective. Um, You know, I I do, I I agree, I don't think it's realistic to uh, remove law enforcement entirely, but one of the things we need to do is have some prosecutorial review of these citations. One of the problems is when they file these citations with the municipal court, there's no, we need to have a prosecutor actually look at those, because that's one of the great functions of prosecutors is exercising discretion. But unlike every other case uh, that we would have in our, you know, uh, higher level criminal justice system, uh, these just get automatically fed with a court date scheduled. So we need some type of uh, review for these uh, to exercise prosecutorial discretion about whether they really belong in the system. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. My name is Mary Gonzalez, and I'm from El Paso, Texas. I think this panel is very important and very passionate about youth issues. But if we know a third of the youth that are on probation and probation have mental health problems, um, but only a fourth of them are getting the necessary access to mental health resources, what could the legislature do to change access to mental health resources? Is it only funding or are there other barriers to pro- providing these access? Um, this act, these resources. I, th- I think there's two things. One is, is the funding to provide adequate care, but also make sure that care is appropriate to the individual needs of the family. Uh, and readily accessible. And readily accessible because oftentimes the funding stream is so small that, that the family or the young person receiving that care when it's available is very didactic and it's in a group and it doesn't hit the individual needs of the family. So I think those two things especially. The front end diversion strategies that Dallas and Bear and Travis have implemented did not take a lot of money either. I mean, a lot of the kids are able to benefit from other programs and federally funded programs. It's just a matter of sitting down, identical, through numbers, sitting down and talking to the practitioners and having a plan that we can go to the legislature and ask, you know, this is your part, this is the, the, the money that you need to add that coincides with other pieces. And 
the front end diversionary initiative, which in Lubbock and Dallas, you've got specially trained juvenile probation officers in mental illness that work with the mental health provider. And I think having that training for that juvenile probation officer so they know uh, how the mental illness intersects with the criminogenic risk factors and what, what interventions are needed is really helpful. And working with their parents and their family and, and having that communication. I mean, a lot of this can really be helped by, I mean, a lot of the parents don't know how to how to work with their children too. I mean, and they're having a, they're having to struggle, you know, making ends meet and being able to to serve, you know, to help their, their children. So it's a, it's an instrumental piece to have. But and I would back it up too and say that we need to get the resources in place so that kids don't even have contact right. with the juvenile system. I mean, that's really the problem. Is that you know the reason that we have so many kids with mental health issues in the juvenile system is because those resources haven't been placed in schools or places where kids can access them before their, their behavior leads them to... Right. You know, I, I have the largest mental health system for adolescents in Dallas, and that's not right. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you shouldn't have to criminalize someone to mm -hmm. get mental health care. Right. Uh, Scott? Yeah. My name is Scott Henson. I actually know all y'all, but um, <laughs> I have a couple of questions. First, uh, as Michelle knows, back when adult probation was merged with the, with the adult prison system, um, it was a big concern raised at the time, and it turned out to be prophetic that um, that probation would become a redheaded stepchild. That that because the hugest volume of employees were all at the institutions, that probation was just going to be de-emphasized, and um, and we have a, a similar situation here where 98% of the kids are dealt with via probation. Yeah, when you look at the agencies, the overwhelming number of folks at TJJD are um, um, focused on the institutions. A very small number focused on juvenile probation, and as y'all all know, the number of people who were there from juvenile probation just a year ago, nearly half of them are gone now. Um, and so uh, uh, what can be done to make sure that the same dynamic we've seen at TDCJ where probation is deprioritized, the institutions are the end-all, be-all, and every time anyone wants to cut anything, it comes from the probation side. How can we keep that from being the same dynamic history repeating itself there in the... That's an excellent question because there's really a, a unique marriage that we need to make sure everyone knows, policymakers, advocates, that when you look at a budget of a system, a system that deals with 55,000 youth a year, you know, you, you, you see that the counties put in about 43% of that funding. And then the state budgets are divided where half that money from the state goes for those six secure programs and the nine halfway house programs in parole. The other half of that state money goes, you know, to the counties. So philosophically, it starts with the leadership. It also goes with breaking down the silos that exist in an agency that was predominantly, as you said, Scott, uh, managed uh, in the past by institutional personnel. I need to make sure I blend that leadership team to have both outside perspectives, the former TJPC uh, uh, specialists that know the community, and then we need good expertise in the secure side too. So it's, it's really up to leadership in terms of my mind, and then Realizing that these stakeholders include police officers, educators, uh, prosecutors, judges, it's not about one agency on the Mars Street. Well, and the we are against the consolidation because of that, Scott, is that originally we fought really hard because we saw what had happened with the adult system 
we did not want to consolidate. I mean, that was like our number one fear. And there was actually a split amongst advocates uh, in regards to, to consolidate or not to consolidate. But I have to tell you that I, I am very hopeful that by strengthening the probation piece in a way that's really going to focus on providing that those resources to the community, providing that technical assistance. I was just telling him earlier that in my dream world, the, the probation piece would be so strong that if you had a department that had a, a, you know, looking at their numbers, they weren't doing something that they needed to do, it, they could just send, you know, a group of experts to look at their data, to help them, to monitor what they're doing, and to hold them accountable, and to also show their success, that would just be, that would be wonderful. And I wish the adult system, I'm hoping that this is going to become so successful that, that we can really look, tell the adult system, look, if you're really strengthening community supervision, if this is where it's at, you know, you, you're having the savings and you're having the public safety outcomes. But um, uh, there's a lot, you know, we are really hoping that this... I have a lot of support, I know that. <laughs> but not, I Everybody wants me to be successful. So. And well, I think we also, in this case, we have the strong language in Senate Bill 653 well, that very clearly prioritized community-based alternatives over incarceration and also included language that tied the funding for the agency, the budget for the agency, to the prioritizations listed at the front end of that bill. Um, and I do think we did this in a very different time than the time when the adult merger occurred. And we had already closed, what, six facilities by the time the merger took place. There have been three more closed since then. And the only reason that we now have parity between the juvenile probation side and the institution side in funding is because of the budget initiatives that started in 2007. Before then, the institution side was funded at a much larger rate than the probation side. And for the first time after last session, we saw the funding uh, approach almost complete parity. It may be actually complete parity now since the... the um, we still have work to do, but you're right, Debbie. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to just uh, ask you to uh, th uh, thank our speakers. And, um, <laughs> and thank you all for coming today and uh, being a great audience. So.